Hello and welcome to the UFO Thinker podcast. My name's Frank and let's get cracking with today's episode. So this one is going to be all about crash retrievals and various different things associated with the topic of crash retrievals. So James Iandoli um, has kind of announced this thing a few weeks back about having a week dedicated to people talking about crash retrievals. And um, I've just done as it happens, a a four-part series on crash retrievals as well. So it's something that I've been thinking about quite a lot recently. Uh, I'm sure any regular listeners of the show will have have, uh, seen at least some of those uh, bits and pieces that I did. So I thought, got to get involved with this and do a bit of a special episode all about crash retrievals. And um, funnily enough, it kind of links into a few things that some people have been talking about recently, like Lou Elizondo's made some comments, um, some fairly in-depth comments actually about certain things that I'll get to a little bit later on. And um, yeah, I just thought it'd be worth revisiting the, the subject and um, you know, actually delving in as part of Crash Retrieval Week. So big shout out to James Iandoli from uh, Engaging the Phenomenon. Great suggestion. And um, I'm really interested to see uh, what goes on with the... He's just announced a, a panel, um, which is a real kind of heavyweight panel of, of guests uh, on his uh, podcast, which he's going to be doing, I think it's uh, on Saturday. And that includes Lou Elizondo, uh, Rich Dolan, and uh, a number of others. So that's going to be fantastic uh, to check out. So I definitely recommend you go and have a, a, a listen or a watch, depending on how they do it, of that. So let's crack on with it then. So basically, to kind of like, first of all, echo a bit of my conclusions that I, that I came to in my four-part series. And as I say, if you want to listen to that, you can go back. It's um, on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be able to go back and see uh, the label does uh, Crash Retrievals Part 1, 2, 3, and 4. And um, each one's over an hour, so there's probably about five hours worth of Crash Retrieval stuff there. Um to dig into and i come come at it from the usual point of view that i come at things just an ordinary guy kind of looking into stuff i'm not an astrophysicist i'm not like a lifelong ufo researcher or anything i'm just coming at this from the outside point of view and you know i'm the type of guy i'm kind of a working class northern english guy you know i, I talk in in the not the queen's english you know i talk in the people's english and i just straightforward you know i just i have a, a good bs meter having grown up around you know, like I say, working class people, you know, you you kind of not that easily, uh, you know, suckered in by BS. <laughs> so I kind of consider myself to have a reasonable judge of, you know, when something's nonsense and when it's not. Obviously, the UFO topic definitely got some, some little bits of nonsense in there, but also there's a lot of really interesting things. And this whole thing with the podcast really is me just trying to work around like what is bs and what's not and get to the truth because you know what could be more fascinating you know what what could be more amazing i always think of it like imagine years and years ago like say 400 years ago yeah 500 years ago people hadn't really even set sail much from the the little islands that they were on you know and they used to look out at the sea and there were all these stories of like sea monsters and beasts and you know these crazy faraway lands with monsters and stuff like that you know that's literally what people used to think would happen if you sailed across the ocean you'd be eaten by a sea monster and if you didn't get eaten by a sea monster when you land on the other side you know have to fight monsters and barbarians and all this type of stuff which was to some extent was kind of true you know obviously a lot of it became like myth and legend you know but actually there are massive squid and sharks and things in the sea and imagine if you set sail from like medieval england uh, you know you set off on a on a rickety boat with sails on it and then you get halfway across the world and you start seeing a great white shark you'd think that was a sea monster wouldn't you and the thing is that i always think like back then there must have been people you know the skept the old school kind of like skeptics and uh debunkers must have been like um you know, denying the the possibility of like going on a boat. You know, like oh, don't do that. You know, there's sea monsters and stuff. You you get eaten. It's not a good idea. And you know, now looking back on that, it seems so silly, doesn't it, to to not explore because you're worried about 
the fact that you know it's the unknown or whatever and it's like you know demons out there in the wilderness and you better not go in the woods because there might be monsters and you know when you look back on that it seems completely silly to think like oh yeah don't go and explore because it's just safer to just stay here and that's basically where humans are right now isn't it you know we're looking out at the universe and we're going right okay what's out there then you know are they coming here what are these things flying around in the sky that are messing around with our nuclear weapons you know and there's some people saying oh yeah it's a lot of nonsense don't even look into it it's, it's you know not even worth it you know and there's a lot of other people more and more now waking up to the thing of actually yeah maybe we do need to look into this thing so and uh you know same kind of thing happened with cars when cars were first invented people thought that if you traveled faster than 30 mile an hour that your your brain would explode or something you know the crazy stuff that anything new and really kind of that challenges the, the popular way of thinking is always going to be a crowd that that wants to slate that you know but you know there's always going to be a crowd that pushes forward and uh hopefully we're going to see plenty of pushing forward you know in the coming years certainly seems that we're going in that direction and i kind of think to myself sometimes that one day we'll look back at this this time and think like wow can you imagine we just thought we were alone in the universe you know something that's really occurred to me a lot recently is that surely at some point and this is what i struggled to get my head around with like skeptics and debunkers and stuff like yeah, maybe we're not going to find out what's going on in the rest of the universe in terms of like other life and things like that. Maybe we're not going to find that out in the next year. I mean, we're certainly, you know, it's almost impossible that we're going to find out in the next year. The next 10 years, you know, I think probably going to be in quite a different situation. The next 20 years, I mean, it's like, it's, it's looking more and more likely that we'll discover a hell of a lot more about the universe. If you look at history, what's happened over the last hundred years stands to reason, like logically, that we're going to know so much more about the rest of the universe in another 20 years. So in another 50 years or another hundred years, okay, let's go a thousand years. In a thousand years, you know, the knowledge that we have of the universe is going to be so much different to ours you know current knowledge that we have right now and as our technology improves the the knowledge that we have of the universe is going to keep improving as well and at some point it seems inevitable that we're going to either be able to rule out the fact that there is other life in the universe because the our detection capabilities are so good and it turns out that actually there isn't anything but that seems so unlikely to me you know it really seems like a matter of time before we eventually can find out that yeah there is other life out there you know and uh you know it might seem very strange to us but we just have to accept it just like the the guys who used to set off on the rickety old boats with sails on and little brass telescopes looking at the horizon and trying to navigate across the ocean and then they turn up on this foreign land and they see like giraffes can you imagine what it must have been like for people who'd never seen a giraffe all of a sudden you turn up in this this place and there's a giraffe mooching along you know like you know up to 20 foot tall or whatever they are and really long gangly legs and a huge neck you know that's not much different to like seeing an alien is it really something that you could never have imagined and there it is just walking along eating, eating leaves off a tree you know and and sooner or later you know humans are going to discover new things about maybe the world we live in or maybe the universe we're on that path aren't we so it's like hard to imagine really that we're not going to discover more things that are as much of a paradigm shift as things like that that we've discovered in the past you know again one that i've heard people talking about a lot recently but black holes were just a theoretical thing that they didn't actually know if they existed you know a few decades ago and now they've literally taken a photograph of one of them you know and it's like all the various particles that get you know looked into by scientists and all of these things that you can't see them photograph them but you've just got this theory that they exist you know, it's not much different with, with UFOs and other other intelligences out there in the universe. We've got a lot of pointers that it's very likely that they might be the case. So let's delve in and find out. Anyway, getting back to the actual crash retrieval stuff then. So I was just about to say, to echo my kind of conclusions about what I came to when I was doing the four-part series, basically, very, very sh uh, long story short uh, version of, of that 
is that there's a large number of really interesting cases to choose from. And one of the things I found doing the crash retrievals uh, series was that it really is quite striking how similar all of the cases are and um, there are differences obviously like the shape of the craft might be reported differently and whether or not there were uh, you know occupants of the of the craft reporting and things like that but let's just go through the the kind of main ones that i talked about so in chronological order uh, it was first of all 1945 the trinity um, alleged crash and a subsequent retrieval and that one was an avocado shaped craft which was recovered and then subsequently covered up you know and again it's when you actually look at the evidence for it you know just purely the fact that there were um you know clear signs that the military had actually opened up a fence to be able to you know chop a hole in a fence to get these big vehicles in there to be able to recover this debris and i guess really the the, the speculation as to how much debris based on the size of the truck you know i i'd mentioned in my episode that it's kind of a bit dubious you can't really say that just because they used a huge truck there was a huge amount of debris however it must have been a reasonably you know large amount of debris to use a huge truck otherwise they probably would have just put it in a bag you know if it was something really a relatively small amount they did just put it in a bag my point was you know a bag or a box or a trolley or whatever you know i'm not, I'm not saying specifically a bag but my point was that you can't accurately determine the amount of debris based on the size of the truck because it may just be that they only had a large truck available and you know the, the only like a quarter filled it so i don't i don't think you can really definitively say how much debris there was based on the, the type of truck however it's pretty clear that they had to get a truck in there to actually be able to remove some debris and again you could you could argue i guess that that actually wasn't um, you know a, a crashed ufo you could argue that it was in fact uh, you know some kind of experimental weapon or balloon or observation device or whatever but they retrieved something and they covered it up and then very similar thing with roswell so obviously the most famous ufo crash ever really and the thing with roswell was a, the flying disc was recovered and it was even reported on that a flying disc had been recovered by the army and you know it was then covered up and again there's absolutely no question as to whether or not something was collected from that area and then was covered up and people were intimidated and told not to talk about it and obviously what what the official explanation is that it was a a, a secret uh, observation balloon project mogul which was um high altitude balloons which were uh, detecting uh, very very um subtle uh, changes in in uh, vibration to see if they could detect uh, nuclear missile uh, tests uh, by the soviets and um you know that's the official explanation but even the official explanation admits that something was covered up and it's if they've covered something up and lied about it the first time around it's not really that convincing when they offer another explanation because that very well could be a lie and you know it's again it's where the smoke this fire and uh so 1947 that was the roswell one only a couple of years after the trinity one and then we've got the another one that i did an episode on was the the kecksburg crash so again similar situation an object was recovered and covered up and that was, like I say, 1965, so that's some years later. And I, I kind of tempted to think that these are really just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, it's quite obvious from, from these that something happened there. Something crashed and was retrieved by the military and then was covered up. And not only that, they went to great lengths to cover it up. And people were intimidated, people were threatened. And, you know, you've got to think that there must have been other cases where this this kind of thing has happened and by all accounts the intimidation it you know it, it's pretty intense so i bet there's been other ones that have happened as well that people have just not stepped forward and they've just gone to the grave with the, the secrets i mean in the the roswell case uh, william brazel brazel i still not really know how you say his name but anyway i'm just going to go with brazel uh, william brazel never even really spoke to his family about the case you know he kind of just wouldn't talk about it um because of the 
the intimidation that he allegedly uh, was was subjected to and there's so many other cases that I just recently was hearing about the case with uh, um, the uh, UFO that apparently interfered with a nuclear uh, dummy warhead for a nuclear missile and um, the guy who was, was involved in uh, Robert Sowers's uh, press conference, I forget his name just off the top of my head, terrible with names but he was saying that he was when he came out with his story and sold the story to a, a, a news outlet uh, he was subject to massive intimidation, even to the point of threatening phone calls night after night swearing at him and saying bad things are going to happen to him and then one time he was out and his letterbox exploded while he was on the phone to the person who was harassing him you know, this is real serious harassment they don't want these things to be talked about and Again, you could argue that the reason they don't want these things to be talked about is because of classified secret projects and it's nothing to do with UFOs, but I don't know. It just If, the, if there was only one case, I'd kind of be more inclined to, to see that as a reality, but there's a, so many cases and they've all got the same kind of characteristics and you know, it just seems obvious to me by this point, just from looking at those cases alone, that there's something going on there that they're trying to cover up and it seems very likely to me that it probably is craft. Now then, some of the people who have actually talked about this, obviously Lou Elizondo is very careful with what he says. And again, you know, if you listen to this podcast a lot, you'll probably know that I put a lot of faith into what Lou Elizondo says. You know, this is a guy who is, is you know, never really dropped the ball you know he's, he's always followed through on what he said he was going to do you know he's he's been very honest and he's been a, a real gentleman you know with, with even with people who criticize him and i know a lot of people don't agree with me on the Luel zondo thing but you know that's fine when everybody doesn't have to agree and hold hands and sing come by ah you know what i mean it's all a debate isn't it at the end of the day and, and my current viewpoint is that i put a lot of faith into what the guy says and Lou Elizondo, and you know, has, has very clearly on a number of occasions said that he believes that there is material. He's not really gone into much depth about it, um, but you know, he's he's under you know no uncertain terms. He's said that essentially that there is you know material in possession of the U.S. government. And another person that that Lou Elizondo speaks very highly of is Eric Davis. You know, a very clearly a very brilliant scientist you know we're talking about an astrophysicist somebody who's a, a brilliant mind and has worked at a very high level in in the government's investigations into ufos and the, the various phenomena you know associated with ufos and you know according to the new york times article eric davis gave briefings to department of defense agencies about retrievals from quote off-world vehicles not made on this earth unquote so we're talking about, you know, people within the government are being briefed about this stuff. It's not as though it's just kind of, you know, some, some wacky story. We're talking about, like, people who are in the position to know, you know, put a lot of faith into the fact that this is really a thing, you know? And another one is is George Knapp, you know? And one thing that, that I realised about George Knapp recently, you know, is that the dude is the real deal, you know? Like, I think, to a certain extent, the association with Jeremy Corbell, you know, Jeremy, I like it, Jeremy Corbell, don't get me wrong, but he has his own way of doing things and quite sensationalist. And I don't know, I think, especially people who are relatively new to looking at the UFO topic might kind of see the association with Jeremy Corbell and perhaps you know question a little bit about george Knapp, but what we've got to remember is the guy's the real deal he's been doing this for for a long time now for decades and decades and you know the fact is he has literally just co-authored a book with the program directors of orsap which has now been confirmed by the people who ran the program to have been you know a massive ufo investigation program which was about ufos you know this is what i was talking about in the podcast that i just did a couple of days ago a lot of the skeptics and debunkers claimed that orsap was nothing to do with ufos and it was to do with weapons systems and projected future technologies that, that could exist and looking at experimental you know possible future weapons and propulsion systems well no the actual people who 
were the directors of that program have now gone on the record in interviews and in the book and said very clearly that it was all about UFOs and the various phenomena around UFOs and trying to be able to determine whether or not that was a threat and whether or not we can, you know, gain any knowledge from these things. And George Knapp has been saying this since day one. A lot of people questioned him. A lot of people said he was talking nonsense, but he came through with the goods and Imagine what it must be like for George Knapp. He's been saying all this stuff now for a long time. And apparently, it's, I think he said 14 months it took him to get these, the book actually cleared for release. And all that time, he's been taking flack. You know, people have been saying this, saying that about him. And he's been sat on this book, you know, knowing that he's actually written something with the people who ran ORSAP, which obviously then went on to evolve into ATIP and so on, you know, just imagine how frustrating it must have been for him to hear people saying that all this stuff's nonsense when he knows because he's written a book with the guy who ran it, you know? I think it's time we start putting a bit of respect on George Knapp's name. I mean, obviously, a lot of people already do, and myself included, but, you know, from now on, I don't want to hear any George Knapp slander. <laughs> the guy came through with the goods, you know? And, look, the fact is, does that make you think about what George Knapp actually knows off record. Because I think it should. You know, I think it the fact that George Knapp has actually been, you know, working with people behind the scenes and he's not even let on about any of this. He's kept true to his word and he didn't say anything about the fact he was working with Lukatsky and, you know, that that he had this ace up his sleeve. You know, imagine what the guy actually must know from off record conversations. And unfortunately you have to this is a debate again that can rage on for a long time really you could you'd be discussing this for hours and hours just this particular point but off record statements are a part of looking into this topic there's no getting away from it you know some of the things ross coltart said that he has has heard from off you know off record conversations with people that as a journalist you have to respect when people don't want to go on the record about something and Ross Coltart has, you know, has heard from people off record that there's definitely multiple craft, even people now that are on record as well, like Nat Kovitz, you know, one of the, the chief boffin, as uh, as Ross Coltart explains, for the, for the Navy. This guy has actually been read into multiple, you know, crash retrieval, UFO programs and crash retrieval, reverse engineering programs. And he's seen material. He's actually been taken to look at this material to try and get to the bottom of how it was made and whether we can replicate that, you know. And again, with same thing with a lot of other people who were who have been looking into this topic a long time. You know, you do have to do that a bit, really. Put a bit of faith into a person and bear in mind that they have had these off-record conversations and that should, in my opinion, it should kind of inform, you know, how you how seriously you take that person's statements. It's like Lou Elizondo, for example. He's obviously had a lot of, you know, off-record statements with, with various people who are in a position to know about certain things. Lou Elizondo has shown himself to be very respectful and he won't throw out people's names just to make his own points until the people that he's you know, had these conversations with are willing to come out. The same he did that with Lukatsky. I remember the the Black Vault interview with John Greenwald, and this is worth going back and checking out if anybody's interested. Um that was quite some time ago now, probably about eight months ago or something. I can't remember the exact date. But in that interview, Lou Elizondo talks about specifically um when he was recruited to to, to run ATIP and the person that he's talking about is Lukatsky, but he doesn't mention his name. Now, I'm not 100% sure that it's Lukatsky, but it really seems likely that it is. And again, Lou Elizondo has shown there that he's not willing to betray the trust of that individual. And it's just another point that makes Lou Elizondo's accounts more credible. And when you bear all this stuff in mind, you know, the bigger picture there is that the breadcrumbs that Lou Elizondo throws out I think you know there's, it's worth taking seriously because he's shown himself to be trustworthy. Won't throw people under the bus. He won't kind of, you know, drag people into the limelight unless they want to be in the limelight. 
and you know these off record conversations that he's had you can put a bit of trust into the fact that he's you can't say definitively that you know what he's saying is true because it's coming like second or third hand information but I think it's when you bear in mind the bigger picture of, of this guy's track record, you can take the things that he's saying a lot more seriously. Same with Ross Coltart, and going back to my original point, same with George Knapp. The guy's the real deal. And the a question that you've got to think about with that is it throws up, does that add legitimacy to the Bob Lazar story? Because obviously George Knapp was the guy who broke that story. And George Knapp has not only broke the story, but stuck with that story for years and years and and you know obviously went on the um you know the joe rogan podcast and talked about it bob lazar obviously went on there as well and you know when you consider george knapp's track record he's not really dropped the ball you know it's the same kind of thing as i was just talking about with lou elizondo ross coltart these people are you know people who i can i just get a gut feeling you know which is not scientifically you know provable or whatever but i get a gut feeling about these guys that they you know are not not lying and the track record backs it up and my gut instinct is that you know they're telling the truth and they say that they've had these conversations with people and that you know they they think that it's there really is material in possession of the the US military in these secret departments now Again, the Bob Lazar story, you know, very interesting. The only things that that make me question the Bob Lazar story still is the fact that Chris Mellon and a couple of other people, I think Eric Davis has questioned the the how accurate Bob Lazar's story actually is as well. Um, I think one of the main things was... I think also Ross Coltart's talked about this as well. Bob Lazar's account essentially asserts that there were working craft, whereas I think Ross Coltart and a few other people have, have kind of said that actually there wasn't working craft. But we don't know really with, with Bob Lazar's story how accurate the every aspect of the story actually is because what if... All of the people that are recruited to look at these, these, you know, beyond top secret projects, what if all of these people, just as a precaution that they might go public with the story, what if they're all fed a mixture of the truth and total BS? So, you know, they're shown some kind of pretend craft, you know, which is not actually a real craft. And, you know, they're shown like 50-50 of like, this is legit stuff and this is completely fake. Just so that the story sounds more ridiculous. So that if he ever does go public, people won't take it seriously. You know, I mean, I guess it's a bit of a stretch, but it's something that's occurred to me that, that maybe they do. It's just like, you know, when you hear about people like Rick Doty, you know, he basically says that that's what they do. And he, he was a guy who was actually, you know, employed to spread disinformation. Um, and he says that the way that they do that is they mix in a lot of nonsense with a, a little bits of the truth as well to make the whole thing seem like the bigger picture is, you know, true. And But they throw in a lot of nonsense as well, a lot of bad information. And for all we know, Bob Lazar has been fed some bad information. He's been fed a little bit of nonsense to go along with the real stuff. But even if a bit of what Bob Lazar has said is real, that's pretty pretty huge, isn't it? Pretty mind-blowing. But, yeah, the thing is, with, with George Knapp, about the Bob Lazar story and about crash retrievals and things in general, think about the people that he knows and he works with and is, you know had conversations with off record and probably been out to meals with and socialized with and been around all of these years and being the type of individual that George Knapp is you know a hardcore investigative journalist who you know he's quite no nonsense as well when you look at the the way that he's reported on certain other stories in the UFO world he doesn't tend to just go in hook line and sinker with things like the Anjali story for example the way he's reported on the Anjali story has been with a pinch of salt you know and again things like that reinforces to me that you know he can be trusted he's got a good record this guy and the fact is surely with who George Knapp is and with who he knows and who he's been around all these years if it was BS he would have found out you know that's what keeps coming up in my mind like surely he wouldn't still have faith in the Bob Lazar story all these years 
if he hadn't spoke to people off record and had it confirmed or at least parts of it confirmed and yeah that that's something that that i've been pondering a lot over the last week or so so i just wanted to get that in there but let's just think just for a minute let's just imagine that the bob lazar story is correct okay and bob lazar has seen technology that was not made on this earth i don't know sometimes when you're deep in this topic you can forget about the significance really because you all day you know at least you know if you're obsessed about it like i am i try and have breaks but it always sucks me back in there's always some new thing comes out whatever and uh you know it's hard to stay away from something that i do consider to be such a significant topic and if you think about you know the reality of that you know maybe if can you imagine if bob lazar has really seen craft that were made not on this planet by another civilization or another intelligence or you know just who knows where they're from when they're from but bob lazar could potentially have seen something that was not made on this planet not made by human hands it's just so mind-blowing isn't it just the concept of that that they may exist right now in a storage unit somewhere actual craft you know real alien spacecraft i mean that's so crazy i i I just i struggle to get my head around it really when you actually think about it you you know you tend to get lost in the details sometimes in the ufo topic and trying to you know figure out what's what and you know this person said this and this person but like the actual core of it essentially is you know we may have actual physical evidence of another species that exists outside of the human race you know that is intelligent perhaps a lot more intelligent than us and one of the things that always really amazed me about the bob lazar story is that he asserts that at least one of the the finds was an archaeological find and that's something that um funnily enough lou elizondo was talking about on the theories of everything uh, interview that he did uh, and I, I, t- I mentioned that he'd done that interview um when i recorded my previous episode but now i've actually listened to the whole interview and it's um really interesting um it's two and a two and a half hours long or something if i'm honest a lot of it is things that i already knew and obviously you get you get the sense from Lou Elizondo that he's getting a bit sick of answering all these questions and I don't really I don't really know how many interviews you can do before it eventually becomes not very not very uh, worthwhile you know I mean I do feel like that sometimes in the UFO topic, like you, the Ross Coltart interviews, the Avi Loeb interviews. I love Avi Loeb and Ross Coltart. Those guys are absolute legends, don't get me wrong. But it gets to a point where when you've got 10 interviews being done within the space of a week, you know, they are basically just the same kind of talking points that come up again and again. And you have to sift through to get any new nuggets of information but look don't get me wrong i'm not complaining anytime there's a lou elizondo interview i'll listen to the entire thing you know just on the off chance there might be one little nugget that i didn't know and there was definitely some nuggets in this one definitely some nuggets and one of the main ones was um and uh i think uh, i was just reading earlier on twitter dave smethurst how are you sir uh was was talking about this and it's something that i've mentioned quite a bit in the past as well um but yeah lou mentioned on the on the theories of everything interview about things from our distant past and the fact that our you know current way of looking at things is actually very different from ancient cultures and you know many many ancient cultures actually used psychedelics in some cases or meditation to actually be able to communicate with what they saw as the spirit world or you know there's all sorts of you know historical artifacts about people who have um, supposedly been in contact with angels and you know entities and I was talking about on my podcast a little while ago, a couple of episodes back, about William Blake, um, you know, somebody who was hugely culturally important in the United Kingdom in terms of literature. Um, and he was apparently, you know, basically an experiencer. You know, he's, he's actually, you know, witnessed all of these various different, you know, creatures, some, some of them kind of like 
you know angelic in nature and some of them really not that at all you know he claims he witnessed a devil and you know that that's going back a couple of hundred years but if you go even further back and even further back there is some quite you know significant evidence that ancient cultures really kind of saw this as just part of day-to-day life you know things in the sky and you know all the mythology of angels and demons and you know every culture around the world has a concept of this you know and it's only really in the modern time of the last couple of hundred years that we've kind of even really going back a hundred years you know it's not that long since people believed in witchcraft and you know things like that it's only very recently that we've kind of moved away from seeing you know paranormal things as you know we don't take that seriously anymore do we you know it's mostly seen as total nonsense the type of stuff that you have in films you know bearing in mind films didn't even exist a hundred years ago you know the whole thing of like oh it's like something you'd see in a sci-fi movie that's something i hear all the time you know people when it's but bear in mind movies didn't even exist a hundred years ago you know obviously they were they were theatrical plays and performances going back thousands of years but actual films didn't exist 100 years ago that's a crazy thought isn't it and so much of what we consider to be real or fantasy is determined by what you see in films you know like we're kind of quite accustomed to seeing like you know scary demons and things in horror films everybody just accepts that when you're watching a horror film but when it comes to real life we just think oh no, no, no definitely not it only happens in films you know i don't know maybe that's a part of why we don't take that seriously as an aspect of life anymore but even religions i grew up in a catholic family and in in catholicism you know as as i've heard a lot of people talking about this as well recently but catholics you know take it quite seriously that there are kind of like you know the concept of of entities you know like angels and and demons and good and evil and the fact that good and evil is represented by various ethereal beings you know it's not it's not really that weird for for somebody who's a catholic to to think of that and obviously catholicism is a very old religion and the vatican have you know been quite open to the existence of like extraterrestrial life and you know life non-human intelligences and things like that because to them you know the the things that that god is capable of you know doesn't is not limited to just this planet you know it's it's an all-powerful force you know the 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 power of, of god as it were i'm not really a strict catholic these days but just having grown up in a catholic family seeing you know the way that they talk about things you know it's quite interesting to relate that back sometimes but anyway moving on as i say many ancient cultures had had these kind of ideas that a part of normal life is that humans are in touch with you know other entities that are that are non-human basically and traditions mythology and religion you know goes back thousands and thousands of years and what we what you have to remember i think with that as well is that actually the reality of it is is that you know when you're talking about religions from way back knowledge was contained within these stories it wasn't simply a case of oh let's make a fun story to tell the kids you know the way that things were actually passed on previously in in history even going back 100 or 200 years knowledge was contained within you know stories and that storytellers were the ones who spread knowledge and what you had to do was take the moral of that story and yeah on the surface of it it's an entertaining tale but deeper down there's actually knowledge within that story and i think that the symbolism within religions you know can be interpreted a lot of different ways and that's the way that people actually you know passed knowledge on from generation to generation obviously going back a few thousand years the advent of people actually writing creating languages and things like that um but you know even way before that who knows you know the things that have been passed on through generations you know some of the the stories in the bible like the bible like the the book of enoch talking about ancient people who lived for hundreds and hundreds of years and you know had powers and you know the um the various different things within that how much of that is you know factual how much of that is actually genuinely correct 
and um, yeah, it's something that I'm I'm going to be looking into more as a, as we go along as well because I find it really really interesting. But I was also thinking that when you're looking at these stories, you have to try and find a bit of a you know ancient tales and stories, and as I say, knowledge is passed on through. Um, you know these stories and things you have to try and find a line of how much of this is fantasy made to be entertaining and how much of it is actually knowledge and, and information kind of encoded within the particular um, you know the story that's being told and it's funny because I saw somebody post about this on Twitter about Lou Elizondo um, how much of what he's saying is actually based on things that he's been told or as seen to be factual and how much of it is speculation and especially when we're talking about things like the ancient civilizations and whatnot i do wonder that myself as well is he just speculating there is he just kind of you know going on a stream of consciousness and just saying whatever he thinks or is it actually based on certain things that he's seen from his line of work when he was working in atip and other organizations and um, difficult to say you know, we know that there's now some um, there's some kind of you know assertions that that Lou has been involved in remote viewing in the past, and he's mentioned also that he's been, he's actually been to have experiences with indigenous tribes, and could that be you know ayahuasca, you know psychedelic experiences that have enabled him to see certain things, and he's very much on the theories of everything uh, interview that he did. He was talking in quite a lot of detail about some of these ancient tribes and the ways that they uh, see the world and the way that their cultures see the world. Um, and, you know, it's interesting to me how much of that was, so for example, he's looking into remote viewing and he's looking into these tribes and their uh, worldviews. How much of that was directly rated, related to his ATIP work and how much of that is just his own interest? You know, perhaps he was... You know, he got interested in that kind of thing as a result of his work with ATIP. Perhaps it's completely unrelated. And, you know, you know what I mean? There's a fine line between is he speculating here or is this based on some real factual things that he's seen through the years? Um, obviously, you know, without asking him, difficult to say, but who knows? Maybe I'll interview Lou one day. Um, we'll see. But one of the things that it made me think about was and again this is something i've talked about on the podcast a lot is ancient egypt and could it be that the relics of ancient egypt are remnants of an advanced civilization now lou elzondo actually talks about this as well on this particular interview which is quite surprising um and he was meant. He didn't really directly refer to ancient Egypt in the way that I'm doing here, but he talked about it that actually the pyramids couldn't have been made by a super advanced civilization, or it's maybe more likely that they weren't, because the fact is, um, you know, they are not going to stand the test of time in the grand scheme of things. Like he was saying, if you had, I think his exact question was, um, if you had to make something which would last a million years, how would you do it? And realistically, you know, if you create something on this planet made of stone, like the pyramids, that's not going to last a million years. That was basically what Lou was trying to say. So yeah, I think that's a fair point. And, and Lou was hinting at um, the, the fact that if you wanted to create something that would you could encode knowledge into and pass it along, which would last for millions of years, one of the ways to do that would actually be DNA. You know, so humans may actually have certain messages within our DNA that have been left there on purpose for us to find at the point when we reach a certain level of advancement that we can decode that information. And maybe that's the case. Maybe that is true. But interestingly, also kind of pointed towards a few other things as well like the moon and um kurt the interviewer on theories of everything actually mentioned um that he might possibly make something out of the hardest material known to man that would be the most durable and then place it into orbit and it did make me think and, and lou didn't suggest uh, exactly uh, the orbit thing but then it kind of followed it up by mentioning about the moon 
because obviously on the moon there's not the same environmental uh the possibility of environmental damage like there is here on earth because obviously there's no atmosphere so there's no you know weather conditions that can erode something away so perhaps if you wanted to store something you may store it on the moon and that is a very interesting thought isn't it you know could it be that there is some kind of you know advanced technology or messages left on the moon you know, is that what China are doing when they're trying to, you know, explore the dark side of the moon more? And, you know, maybe the, the Americans have, have already found little bits and bats of this and that. I don't know. It's it's a tricky one. I've, I've kind of dismissed it in the past, really. The You know, the pyramids and the shapes that are supposedly seen on Mars and things like that. I don't know. I've never really found it particularly compelling. But on the other hand, if you were a civilization that existed on this planet, you know, million a million years ago there would be no no remnants really of, of that civilization especially if they used a totally different type of technology to what we use or perhaps you know this is something i've been thinking about a lot perhaps there is some kind of other other realm of reality that we can't perceive which actually has beings entities you know whatever you want to class it as that are intelligent and maybe they're the one you know the ones that are actually interfering with nuclear weapons and maybe what it actually was is that the egyptians for example you know and maybe other civilizations way before the egyptians perhaps these people had figured out a way to rather than having kind of like nuts and bolts technology that we have maybe they'd figured out a way to work in cooperation with the entities that exist alongside us in a realm of reality that we can't perceive and maybe that's how certain things like um you know the 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 relics of ancient egypt that, that are very difficult to explain how they could have possibly have made them maybe that's how they got made because we had help from these other entities like the the technology in, in you know in quote unquote that ancient civilizations may have stumbled across maybe it wasn't anything to do with the nuts and bolts physical technology that we have developed in modern times maybe they'd figured out some way to work in cooperation with the 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 powers that we can't understand that are in this alternate dimension or a different realm of reality that we can't perceive and maybe we just lost touch with that because we're clearly a less spiritual segment of human history at the moment aren't we compared to if you look at um you know ancient civilizations you know there's very clear evidence that they took psychedelic substances to be able to communicate with the spirit world and receive messages from that spirit world and it informed their world view and you know ancient civilizations have meditated to achieve the same results and it does seem quite interesting that you have these amazing structures that don't really seem to fit in with the timeline of what we understand to be our history and it's very very fascinating that in Egypt, for example, I've been down this rabbit hole recently. There's um, there's actually a lot of the the most impressive structures in Egypt are also the oldest structures in Egypt, and there's been you know things like Gobleki Tepe and various other um, sites around the world which are, are, are megalithic sites which shouldn't really exist according to the standard accepted timeline and you know how is that and maybe it is that kind of thing i was talking about where they had managed to you know utilize some kind of connection with a part of reality that we're not able to communicate with perhaps we've lost that ability we've we've gained knowledge in other areas but we've lost knowledge in you know in, in a certain area as well as as, as time has gone along and this kind of ties in with what Graham Hancock and Randall Carlson have talked about quite a lot, which is that, you know, we're a species with amnesia, as, as Graham Hancock always says. And, you know, I think it's it looks fairly likely to me at this point that before ancient Egypt, dynastic Egypt, as we know it now, perhaps there was another civilization more advanced 
than than we we had any idea that they would be. Maybe they existed twenty thousand years ago, thirty thousand years ago, before the time of the ice age, and they were aware, perhaps due to the technologies that they had, or the you know, the, when I say technologies, I don't mean really the nuts and bolts technologies that we have, but maybe they had some kind of perception of events where they knew that there was an an upcoming cataclysm and it couldn't be avoided because they had no way to stop it from happening so what they did was they made these massive structures which they knew would last um through the cataclysm that was coming up and encoded certain knowledge within that and maybe even they so let's say there's this civilization 20,000 years ago that built the pyramids and they built these unbelievably um, advanced structures like the statues with perfect symmetry and um, maybe even they inherited a lot of their knowledge from an even further back civilization. You know, we know humans have existed for hundreds of thousands of years and, you know, we don't know how many times humans have kind of risen and fallen. You know, there's even concepts of the may have humans may have originated on Mars, you know, and I don't think it's outside of the realms of possibility. Imagine if humans initially were on Mars, it's shown now that there was water on Mars. There's lakes, you know, which millions of years ago, there were lakes on Mars with running water and, you know, if a civilization existed on Mars over a million years ago, it would be so completely covered over by this point that you wouldn't be able to see any remnants of it without digging down, obviously, through um, the top layers that exist on the, on the surface of the planet. You know, it, it is possible. I'm not saying that that's what I think and I know that to be a fact, but, you know, it, it could be the case. And if a civilization like that existed and they knew they were going to be wiped out by some kind of huge cataclysm on Mars, which the atmosphere on Mars apparently was stripped at some point. So before that, Mars had an atmosphere and potentially could have actually had life on there. And if they knew that was coming up, they might have just jumped to the next planet. I mean, that's what we're about to do, isn't it? Humans are about to jump to Mars. You know, it's going to happen in the next couple of decades that people will live on Mars. You know, we're about to inhabit Mars. So why is it that strange to think that maybe in the distant, distant past, you know, people were already on Mars and they jumped to Earth and then it just turned out that the the home planet, the original place, that got destroyed by an asteroid. And maybe even, you know, a part of that asteroid actually chipped off and became the moon you know that we have now and maybe that same asteroid impact that hit mars also fragments of that asteroid hit the earth and caused some kind of cataclysm on earth as well and then slowly but surely the survivors of all of this built back built back and eventually you know managed to kind of become a more advanced civilization and then you know lo and behold 20 or thirty thousand years ago they, they managed to figure out that actually there's going to be another cataclysm and they need to create these you know monoliths these massive structures to be able to encode some of their knowledge into structures to be passed down and it certainly seems to be the case that you know when you're looking at the pyramids the structures and the most astonishing things that they managed to create are also the oldest and how does that work how can you have a civilization that starts off able to do amazing things with with the technologies that they have at the fingertips and then and then that that actually diminishes as time goes along and again you know the stories in the bible about you know a previous race of of you know people descended from the heavens who, who tried to pass on the knowledge to humans and things like that and i don't i don't think you know we can take these things off the table until until we've actually got direct evidence of what exactly happened you know i know a lot of these things get dismissed as like pseudoscience and things like that but i have not seen a compelling argument as to how they made for there's these things right called the the, the serapium there's these boxes in this in the serapium in in egypt and i have not seen a compelling you know argument or a compelling um, theory as to how these things were made they supposedly 
made by stone tools by literally just bashing stone against another stone and and having some kind of copper um, tools that they managed to work the stone with when you look at these boxes they are hundreds of tons granite boxes which granite is extremely difficult to to work as a stone um, and the, what i would recommend you do is have a look at there's a channel called uncharted x and if you've not seen it already you may you may already know about it but the uncharted x channel is a guy who's really into egypt and particularly the mysteries of some of the the structures within egypt and he's he's done some fantastic videos on youtube um which go into all of the anomalies with these objects and the serapium I forget the exact number, but it's something like 23 boxes. And these boxes are huge. They're like the size of a room, really. Um, you know, the, the massive boxes, hundreds of tons. And they're absolutely perfectly constructed. You know, like they're exactly parallel within like a thousandth of an inch. And the corners of the boxes are so unbelievably precise that it would be extremely difficult to replicate that today let alone you know thousands of years ago that these things were actually made and some of the ge geometry of the statues that are found in, in in egypt as well are just remarkably accurate and symmetrical almost to the point where when you look at it it looks a bit strange you know because it's so perfect and there's people who've done christopher dunn um a famous well famous within that that niche um, he's an author who's actually had a background in constructing things from stone and he's actually analyzed the the geometry of these statues and found it to be absolutely perfectly symmetrical and you know this is a civilization that supposedly only had stone tools and you know and some copper chisels to be able to to do this this work it just doesn't add up and all of the the supposed sacred geometry, the fact that the pyramids, you know, use all of these various different ratios to relate to the diameter of the earth and things like that, that's also a, a particularly fascinating. But the serapium in particular is, I just cannot understand how that could have been done. Not to mention the fact that they've actually they've actually tunneled down into the bedrock to create the passageways where these huge uh, boxes are. And nobody knows how they made the boxes. Nobody's really done any proper analysis on it. It just seems to be it's so you know difficult to explain that the Egyptologists have just swept it under the rug and they don't really want to deal with it. But there's a growing number of people who are looking into it. And I just find it fascinating that, that these things exist and they've managed to get them into these tunnels. They're not made from the rock that the actual tunnels are made from. So these things these things have actually been um uh, taken out of a, a, a quarry at a different site and then shipped hundreds of miles perfectly carved within millimeter not even millimeter precision it's just you know a hundredth of a millimeter precision and and then somehow maneuvered into this tiny little you know alcove within a tunnel complex and you know 30 or 23 or however many they are of these boxes have been created nobody knows what they're for nobody has any idea how they were made or what they're for and that's just amazing to me you know these things have just been buried and i think they actually weren't discovered until the 1850s so it's literally only over the last couple of hundred years that we've even um discovered um you know these things in general and um, they had to blow open the rocks that were blocking the entrances, and then they managed to excavate the the, uh, the, the well, you know what was in there. And it's this unbelievably complex, um, you know, construction of so many of these boxes. Uh, it's really really interesting. And as I say, whether or not you think that that may have been evidence of some kind of previous advanced civilization, you know, which is kind of what I'm leaning towards. Um, maybe a civilization that existed before what we now know as the the egyptians and the egyptians were basically just you know trying to carry on as best they could having the you know the the knowledge passed on to them and but they weren't really um able to to match the technology they just had, had dribs and drabs of what was left over um you know whether you consider that to be the case or whether or not it was just purely somehow they managed to create these things a few thousand years ago even if it's just that how did they do this because the actual 
you know, official line from Egyptologists is that these things were created about 3,000 years ago. But as I say, to me, it would it'd actually stand to reason that they were created more like 10, 20,000 years ago and that, you know, the, 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 the Egyptians as we know it inherited these things because um, when, when we're actually looking back at the history books, there's evidence that they have actually renovated these objects. So they were renovated around about the same year that they were supposedly created. Now, why would you create something and renovate it all in the same year? doesn't really make sense. But even if they were created 3,000 years ago, how the hell did they do it? You know, how did they manage to do something that even if we go back 100 years, we would not have been able to do it? We probably could now, but it would be extremely difficult and it would cost millions of pounds per box. I mean, Christopher Dunn actually got in touch with a granite working company and um, was asked them if they could replicate this and whether it'd be possible for an ancient civilization to do it. And the granite working company actually came back to him and said, it'd be hundreds of thousands of dollars just for the piece of raw granite alone. And then the freight costs and the actual ability to take something of that size would be extremely difficult and unbelievably expensive. And then in order to actually work the granite into that shape, you'd be looking at having to actually create specific machinery just to do it because we don't currently have the machinery because we you know we don't you know generally manufacture things of that shape so we don't we'd have to actually make the machinery to to create these things um and uh you know that's now or that that was probably you know a decade or two ago when he initially wrote that book and again now we could probably create them but think about 100 years ago 200 300 years ago we would have had absolutely no way of making something that accurate even a few hundred years ago so how did they supposedly do it 3000 years ago you know how did they do it 10000 20000 years ago whenever they actually originate from it's it's very difficult to to get my head round and also there's writing on these boxes as well and this is one of the things that um, the guy from uncharted x talks about quite a lot is that the writing on the boxes just doesn't match the quality of the construction of the box itself so we're talking about you know like an unbelievably precise box or an unbelievably precise geometrically perfect statue and then on the side of it is like really kind of not very accurately scrawled um, hieroglyphics. And the what, what the argument is there is that actually these things were created way before the dynastic Egyptians. And then they were discovered, just like we discovered them in the 1850s, the Egyptians actually discovered these items. And then the pharaoh of the time um, marked his name into the actual side of it to basically to kind of put their mark on the thing which would explain why um the technology of the the actual construction of the box seems to be way more advanced than the technology of the inscriptions on the box but as i say the best way to find out more about that is to actually go and go and look at it but i thought it related to the crash retrievals um topic because as i say bob lazar and a few others have mentioned that there may be archaeological uh, crash retrievals and you know could it be that the whatever technologies whatever abilities that these some of these ancient civilizations had to create things like those boxes and those geometrically perfect statues you know could it be you know some distant time in humans past that we have no knowledge of whatsoever it's all been wiped away by cataclysms and you know the the sands of time as it were you know and could it be that all of this, you know, is a relic of the past? Perhaps even those ancient civilizations that may have existed 20,000, 30,000 years ago, perhaps they existed, you know, in, in cooperation with some kind of entities. And, you know, perhaps the entities visited them. Perhaps the entities actually incorporated their DNA into our DNA and, and you know, created some kind of hybrid race. It's all very speculative, but what could be more fascinating and also another thing that kind of links it into the crash retrievals is something that i noticed when i was doing my research for my crash retrieval series is that all of the crash retrieval cases that i discussed trinity roswell and kecksburg all referenced some kind of 
hieroglyphic type shapes which were actually on the craft or the materials that were recovered now that could be a coincidence it could be one of those cultural things where because that was mentioned in one of the early cases then it was subconsciously in the minds of the people who've you know um, seen these other ones and they've, they've kind of created some false memory or something but I don't know it just seems a bit of a coincidence that all of these crash retrievals talk about hieroglyphic type you know writing on the side of the material and it does make you wonder could that be that these craft are actually from some kind of intelligence that has previously visited ancient civilizations on this planet as i mentioned earlier perhaps the intelligences were in in cooperation with the ancient civilizations on this planet and that's how they were able to create the things that they did and all of the technologies and all of the things that they they managed to do were as a result of their cooperation it would certainly explain why the same kind of symbols appear but we're going to have a lot more uh, discussions on things like this as well. I've got a couple of guests, actually, um, that I'm hoping to get on the podcast. I've been talking to. I've not had many guests on recently because I've just been focusing on, you know, delving into some cases on my own and, and really exploring my own um thoughts on things and, and going down some rabbit holes but uh, i've got some guests planned coming up towards the end of the year which should be really exciting and um, some to do with ancient alien type of hypotheses and um, a couple of others as well so yeah definitely looking at getting into more of these links between ancient civilizations and how that could relate to the ufo phenomenon and whether or not ancient civilizations had kind of like stronger links with um some of the weirder aspects of reality than what we do um but as i say um we'll see how all that goes in the coming weeks and months so i'm going to leave it there for now i hope you've enjoyed that pretty deep down the rabbit hole on that one eh but it's got to be done and i do enjoy a bit of speculation so if you've been listening all the way through thank you very much and um until next time Stay curious, take it easy, and I'll catch you in the next episode. UFO Podcast.